Good morning. Man, it's exciting to go after all that. Do we call that a hoedown? I don't know what that's called in country terms. Uh, I brought an illustration with me this morning. We are uh, continuing through the study of Titus. We just started last week. Uh, Titus, God's blueprint for a healthy and fruitful church. Um, Last week we looked at just the first five verses and saw how there's a purpose for this letter that Paul wanted to tell a young pastor who's left on an island. Listen, people can have the gospel, but it doesn't mean they're going to do church right. You got to set what remains in order. You got to set in order what, what was left undone. And we saw how that was the really the whole theme of the letter, and it began with committed believers, committed Christians. And this next part that we're looking at is that a healthy and fruitful church is led by qualified men. Now, I have uh, two different clocks up here, two different kinds of clocks. I don't know if you guys can see this. We have the uh, classic analog clock, as some people call it, the dial uh, face, um, which I know at least you know, 50% of you can read. And then we have uh, this digital clock, but this digital clock is uh, special. You, you know, does anybody know what's special about this clock? It's an atomic clock. Well, it's not really an atomic clock. It says it's a... It's not, but it's atomic. He was like, anatomic. That's, that's, no, that's not it. It's atomic, but this is why it's an atomic clock. Uh, This works off of gears and springs and and things that rotate and click every second and then eventually click every minute. Uh, This takes a radio signal from Colorado and it tells us the time. You just put batteries in this, it sets automatically. Uh, The reason why I'm showing you these two, uh, if you have a clock like this in your house and it's wrong, who does it affect? Just you. If you have a if you have an analog clock in your house, anybody the power goes out, what do you hate doing? I got to change the time on my oven, on my microwave. Unless you got really fancy stuff, I don't. I have to manually change mine. And uh, if it's wrong in your house, who's affected? Just you. Uh, the atomic clock, the way they measure this in Boulder, Colorado, there's a part of the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They best they basically measure. Uh, how long gas, the, the frequency of gas. <laughs> this is not a teenage joke. This is real. There's like, they, they basically throw, cesium is the most popular one. They throw it in a vacuum. It goes up and down. They use magnets and lasers. At the end of the whole deal, uh, the natural frequency or the resonancy of cesium gas is a second. It takes one second, and they measure this. And they have this standard. Now, when you pull out your phone... Have you ever pulled out your phone to know what time it is? I mean, not in church. Don't do that. That's rude. But other times, you pull out your phone if you want to know what time it is, and you just trust that time is correct. You know how they get that time? Now, I know that's through the uh, GPS satellite, but they get that from Colorado here. They get that from um, the NIST, and the, the way they figure that out is with the gas. And here's where I'm pulling this all together. If this is wrong... If this one is wrong in your house, it only affects you. If this is wrong, if the atomic clock, if the measurement is wrong in Colorado, it affects an entire nation. Leaders are like atomic clocks. 
The reason why leadership is so important in the New Testament, why you're about to read God makes a big deal about leaders in the church, the reason why is if the leaders are off time, if they're off step, if they're bad, if they're going in the wrong direction, everybody with them goes in the wrong direction. And so I want you to be thinking as we read through this passage why this is so, so important to God It's because He loves you. He doesn't want you to be on the wrong time, on the wrong path, going in the wrong direction. He wants you to have the right time. So we're going to start reading. I'm going to push this down because it's none of your business what time it is, uh, how long it takes me to preach this sermon. It's none. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete, if you, if you weren't here last week, you'll just have to go through that, but Titus is a, a young pastor that Paul mentors and raises up and trains to be an elder, to be a pastor, uh, to, to plant churches. Um, by the way, it takes elders to plant churches. You can't plant a church without elders uh, because no one knows how to plant a church without there being the right leadership. It began that way 2,000 years ago, still true today. Uh, you've got to have the right leadership with the right doctrine leading the church. You've got to have that. And so Paul tells Titus, I'm leaving you on the biggest Greek island, you know, in the Mediterranean. I'm leaving you here because I need you to set right. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. As I directed you to appoint elders in every town. Elders are the leaders. That's what we're going to be talking about. Now, he uses this verb, to set right. It's one word in this language. It's where we get our word orthopedic. Orthopedic. Do you know what an orthopedic is? Yeah, bone specialist, kind of ligaments, tendons, bones. Uh, they started off just bones because we were like, ligaments, tendons, who needs those? So it started off with bones a couple hundred years ago, they, orthopedic. Anyway, uh, they get this word from that. It means to set straight, to set the bone straight. You know, if you broke your arm... The only way for it to heal right is if they get that thing straight, straightened. And so this, this is where we get that word. Paul says, I need you to straighten out the church. I need you to straighten out the church. Think of it like the bones of the church. This is the structure of the church. Now remember, the church is not a building. Church is not a building. It's a people. It's a family. It's a church family. And God wants to straighten out the church. What's really cool, though, what's relevant in these verses to you, even if you're not an elder, a pastor, a bishop, an overseer, Presbyterian, whatever, God wants you to be straight as well. God wants to straighten you out. Now, when I say straighten you out, it's not this, you better straighten up. Have you ever heard a, a father say that, you better straighten up? It's, they use, they're using the same verb. But the idea is if you're broken... If you're crooked, you're going to be in pain, you're not going to work right, and that's never going to get fixed until you're straightened out. So God's desire for the church and for you as individuals is to straighten you out. So as, you read these, as we read these verses together, know this, God wants to set you right as well because the church is a people. It's a family. It's each individual. So as we're going through this, I want you to think of this thought. Lord, am I set right in these ways? Am I following your design for fruitful, healthy living? 
to be healthy, as a healthy believer, am I set straight or is there something broken in my life that you need to straighten out? And he, and he does it through his word, he does it through his spirit, he does it through the church. He wants to straighten you out, but in a good way, like a physician would want to help you to heal and, uh, and to know what it's like to be healthy and fruitful. So, uh, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. Now, elders is the next word. These are the leaders, and this explains who the leaders are. The elders are who the leaders are. So as we're thinking about a healthy and fruitful church, it begins with leadership. He's talking about leadership. Uh, who are the leaders? Well, he calls them elders. Now, there's three words for this one office, we call it, this leadership title, this function, this role. There's three words that the New Testament uses for this office, these elders. There's elders, and that's the Greek word presbyteros. That's how you pronounce it. I know the, the English looks like presbyteros. It's just presbyteros. Can, you, can we just say it together? Presbyteros. All right. Or you can say Presbyterian because it's fun to mess with them about this. This is actually where the church, the Presbyterian church comes from. They get it from this, this name. They know that leadership in the church is elders. They know that's what it's supposed to be. Elders, presbyteros. This speaks of three words, wisdom, experience, and tested. For you to be considered an elder in the church, it's not just, you know, some people say, oh, you got to be old. No, it is the word where we think of old. We think of this elderly. That's where we get it. But the, but the office, the role that Paul's talking about includes people like Timothy and Titus, who were not considered old. As a matter of fact, with Timothy, Paul even said, don't let them look down on your youth. Now, that means he was closer to 30 than he was 40 or above. So elder doesn't just mean old. It means that you're experienced. You have spiritual experience. You have experience walking with God. That's why in 1 Timothy 5, I think it's around the fifth verse, he says, and don't be quick to lay hands on elders and to appoint elders. If they're a new convert, don't pick them. If they're a new believer, you don't want that, like in 1 Timothy 3. Don't pick new believers because they're not experienced following God. They need experience. Elderly are also synonymous with wisdom. Because if you're, if you're old, you've been through some stuff, haven't you, right? Any old people in here? So, no, I'm just kidding. You've been through some stuff. You know things. You've been there, done that. Any of you parents, when you're dealing with your kids, what sometimes when you're talking with them, what do you think? Listen, I, I know how you feel. I know what you're thinking. You're wrong. And I know that because I was wrong. I remember thinking the same thing as you did, and then I found out, I was wrong, and it just helps me to know, buddy, you're wrong. Experience can give you wisdom and knowledge. So uh, wisdom is part of the word, actually, for elders are known for having wisdom and then tested. The idea for an elder means not just age, but the years of experience and wisdom are demonstrated. You have, you've been tested. If you become an elder at a church... People around you should know, I know how this guy lives. I know who this guy is. I know what this guy thinks. I know how this guy teaches. I know this person. They're wise, experienced, and tested. That's presbyteros. That's the first term. 
The other term is uh, episkopos. That's where we get the Episcopal church denomination name from. Episcopos. That means overseer. It's almost always translated overseer. Some translations, the older ones, they, they say bishop. A bishop is an overseer. We don't use the word bishop very often, and so I'll just say overseer. But that's overseer, episkopos. An overseer speaks of authority and responsibility. The leaders in the church are responsible for what goes on. We're going to be held accountable. The New Testament tells us hey, you're, you're going to be held accountable. You're actually going to receive a lot more expectation out of God for your actions than others. I mean, there's a high standard that God wants because they're overseers. They're responsible and they're authoritative. And then the third word is, is poimain. That's the word for shepherd. Uh, we use the word pastor. Long story short, etymology lesson, pastor comes from shepherd, shepherd poimain. The idea is the church people are like a flock, like a bunch of sheep. And sheep are known for some things, and we'll go through that later. But anyway, they, the function is an overseer, elder, shepherd loves God's people. Like a shepherd to sheep, he protects them, he feeds them, he cares for them. That's this office. So who the leaders are, right there in verse 5, uh, just for some of you Bible students, and, and I, this is very important. This is so important that you know this uh, because there are some churches that don't see leadership as we do, and I want you to know why. Why do we not have uh, women elders? Are we sexist? Do we, are we judgmental, biased? What, what is the reason for that? Why do we believe in a plurality of elders, pastors, bishops? Why do we see them as the same office? Why do we not like the uh, Episcopal Church have certain uh, hierarchy? Why do we not have that in our local church? Why do we do the things the way we do? I'll give you two passages of Scripture that use all three of these terms speaking of the same man so that you guys get a full picture of biblical picture. Number The, the first one is in Acts, Acts chapter 20. In verses 17 through 28, I'm not going to read them all, but 17 and 28, he brings this idea. Paul is in Miletus and he calls the elders from the town of Ephesus, second largest city in the world at the time, largest church, that's where he leaves Timothy, central part in Asia, not all of Asia, it was different back then. And so he calls them to him in Acts chapter 20, Luke records this event. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church, elders, Presbyteros. you keep reading through, all the same context, same moment. Then verse 28, this is what Paul's telling the elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. There's that word, overseers, episkopos, the bishops, as overseers to shepherd. This is the word poimain in its verb form. Uh, the idea is you, you're, you're supposed, your elders and your overseers and your shepherds. This is why these three terms that we call them refer to the same guy to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Uh, the next passage, 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders, elders being presbyteros, among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ. He's an apostle, he's a disciple, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. That's talking about the second coming when Jesus comes back. Shepherd God's flock among you. There's the word shepherd or poimain or what we call pastor. In our English, we've just changed it to pastor. Pastor, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly. 
as elders, as pastors, you're going to be overseeing the church. So don't do that begrudgingly. Don't do that for gain and money out of compulsion, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly. So you could see these are the two most popular passages. They use all three terms speaking of the same guy. And that's why we believe here, we, we stand on the Bible, biblically in the New Testament, elder, pastor, overseer, or bishop, those are all three names for the same exact person, the same man in the church. This would be like in my home. I am a father and I'm a husband, but that's not two different guys in my home. I am the father. I'm also the husband. I am the leader in the home, according to the New Testament. I am meant to lead servant leadership, meant to lead well as I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That's on me. My wife is not called to love herself as Christ loved the church. The Bible calls me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. So uh, those are three terms. That's who the leaders are in the church. That's the way God set it up. And we see that just in, I mean, immediately in verse 5, we see who the leaders are, beginning with this term that's used throughout the New Testament that describes this guy. Next, we get to how the leaders live. How do these leaders live their lives? We know who they are, but how do they live? An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Already a mouthful in one sentence. So now Paul is describing the character of these leaders. What are they supposed to be like? And he begins it with their integrity at home. It's their integrity within the home. The test of character begins behind closed doors, always. You know, in our culture, there's a big mistake that people are making where they say, oh, I don't, call, I don't care about their personal life. I just care about their, you know, public decisions when talking about politics. According to God, you should care about their personal life because what goes on within is going to affect everything they do without. That's God's wisdom on the subject. If yours is different, whatever you think. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife. So he begins with blameless. Now, this is already scary. As, as soon as I read this first verse, you know, an elder must be blameless, how many of you would feel like, well, I guess I'm not going to ever be an elder? <laughs> like, that totally takes... Blameless? Oh, okay, blameless. Anybody ever been blamed at home and it was accurate, right? Never, right? We would never. So blameless, the word does not mean perfect. It does not mean an elder must be without fault, which is actually a word and a term and an idea. Blameless means you have no, it, it's the, the root of the word talks about accusations. You basically, to put it in today's language, it means you have no outstanding warrants, metaphorically, within your home. You have nothing in your life at home behind closed doors that's unaddressed that would disqualify you from being in leadership. You are not secretly blameful. You are not able to be blamed by something you're not addressing, something that would disqualify you. So blameless does not mean perfect. If it meant perfect, there would be no elders ever. We would never be an elder. And so blameless does not mean perfect. That's important. Uh, your translation might say beyond reproach. Reproach is like, uh, and beyond or above reproach is like, okay, I can't accuse this guy of something legitimately that he, he has done that would disqualify him or, or that he hasn't addressed. 
There, there's, there's nothing. And, uh, and it doesn't mean that you've never made a mistake. It means that that is not something that's ongoing. Because while you're in the middle of that, you're not able to lead well. Because you're dealing with sin inwardly. You're dealing with sin that you haven't confessed and dealt with. That's going to muddy up your ability to be a leader. And so it's got to be blameless. That means just think no outstanding warrants metaphorically. The husband of one wife. Now, this is a big deal. Some churches believe if you've, ever had, if you've ever been married, even if your wife passed away and you got married again, you can't be an elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, uh, and they take it to mean that. The way that this phrase is used is it means, like in our English, if we translated it directly, it would be, you got to be a one-woman man. you, you got to be a one-woman man. I remember in seminary, this was a big hot topic because there are some denominations to where if you've ever been married before, and it doesn't matter if, it, if they died or if, if you got divorced, some people also take it as that. It means you could never have been divorced. Um, I don't take it that way because there's a way that you could say never been divorced. Divorce is used in the New Testament. It, do, it doesn't say that. This means a one-woman man. So we're arguing about this in seminary. I want you to imagine a classroom in Memphis, Tennessee with a bunch of upcoming bright young pastoral students, maybe not so bright, but they're there, right? They, they, they pay the school. So we're all there in class. We get to this part. We're in a pastoral ministry class, and these guys are breaking out questions like, well, in my church, if you've ever been married before, you can't do it. It doesn't matter. The Word says what it says. We follow the Word. And everybody at my school believed that. We were very biblically grounded. Like, if the Word says it, I don't care if what it says breaks your heart, ruins your family. If the Word says it, that's what it means. And so we're all like, yeah, yeah, we've heard that before. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, I think it means this. Another guy's like, well, I've got a question. What if a guy wasn't, quote, married before, but he was, he was sleeping around all over town then becomes a Christian, technically never was married, so he's never divorced, and then becomes an elder. That guy's worse than the other guy who's been married before. I mean, they just had all these different things. Well, finally, this, the, the professor who's been there, done that, had this conversation. Woof. He finally gives his big spiel, which was my favorite. He goes, you, you, know, uh, you know there's other places where it talks about being a one-woman man in ancient Greek literature? And we're like, yeah, of course we knew that, but why don't you tell us what you think? And then we'll tell you if you're right. And he, he, starts, he starts explaining what it means. He goes, you know, if you're the kind of man that even if you're technically only married to one woman, but you're unfaithful in your heart, you, you commit adultery against her in your heart, you lust after other women, you, you have a habit of like looking at things that you shouldn't look at, you're not a one-woman man. You, you shouldn't be an elder or a pastor. You're disqualified. God doesn't want that kind of man leading in the church. All of a sudden, everybody's hands went down. They're like, oh, I don't have any more comments about uh, just as quiet as you are, we were. <laughs> I think he's right. I think it's so much more than whether you have a certificate of marriage or divorce. A one-woman man means that just as Christ loves the church and gives himself up for her, the leaders, and we ought to raise our sons to be this way, you love your wife. And if you're not loving your wife, you shouldn't be a leader, period. If you don't love your wife, God has not called you to be an elder. You either 
are faithful as a husband at home and have integrity there because if you're not, it doesn't matter what you think or what excuses you give, you ain't going to be a good leader here. I think it's that serious. And so the bar's high. If you're not a one-woman man, you shouldn't be an elder. And if that convicts some of you, there's, there's a couple of guys in here. That either convicts you because there's some secret sin going on in your own heart and mind, and you think, man, is that I'm not able to be an elder? If you're willing to humble yourself and say, I, God needs to straighten this out for me, and either I'm going to obey him and follow him and get this junk out of my life, or I shouldn't be an elder, then you're in the right place. You should be feeling that conviction. But if you're the kind of guy that says, this is impossible, every guy, blah, 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 you ain't ready to be an elder. doesn't matter what people think about you. Eldership is so significant to God because if a man is living in unaddressed, unconfessed sin, he can't do the spirit-filled work that is required to lead God's people. And God loves his people too much to let a scoundrel lead or someone that's not mature and ready yet to lead. You have to be a one-woman man, period. And that's a lot more than just marriage and divorce. A leader's marriage illustrates Christ's love for the church. And if you ain't illustrating Christ's love for the church, you're not leading men in the right direction because integrity begins at home. That's step number one. How can you take someone to a place that you are not going? You can't. It's got to begin at home. The husband of one wife, a one-woman man, with faithful children. Now, some of your translations, and I, and I know this comes off a little harsh, they're, they're, they translate it not according to the text. Your translation might say, children who believe, and that's incorrect. This is faithful children. Faithful is an adjective. It means like children who are faithful, uh, or we would say faithful children. That does not mean saved children. There have been some people that based on the translation they use or the teacher they've ever heard or tradition they've been a part of, they think a pastor's children must be Christians in order for them to be a pastor. Well, this is not what Paul writes or says. Not only does it, is it not what he says, it also doesn't make sense. Uh, you don't even know if your children are Christians. For It could take years. You don't know if your children are Christians. Um, even if the, as they're growing up, you may not know. Uh, textually, let me just argue with it textually. This is, in this translation, great translation, faithful children. Some Bibles say children who believe. It, it's not correct. It's not children who are saved. Because there's a participle. In English, we use a participle. Children who believe is a participle. This is not a participle, but they have participles in the Greek, and they could say children who believe, but they don't. They say faithful children. So your children have to be faithful to you, meaning you've got to be the kind of parent that disciplines your children and organizes your home in such a way that your children obey you. Now, this does not mean that your children have to obey you all the time, because then again, who would be an elder? No one with children. I know that. Uh, whose children are perfect? Exactly. Zero hands online. Zero hands went up, just by the way. Uh, nobody's children are perfect. 
That's why Paul uses these next two words, wildness and rebellion, or your translation might say dissipation. Dissipation is not a word we use. They just use that word because this word for wildness is so extreme and negative in this language, Paul had to use two of the worst words he could think of because everybody's kids are bad. Everybody. I mean, my kids aren't, but your kids are so bad. And it's just everybody. So Paul knew to use wildness and rebellion, which are the most strict, extreme words you could use. That means if your kid's running around and just rebellious and wild and is in your home, this is management in the home, not not outside the home. So this does not account for adult children. Uh, If they're just wild and you have a parent that's not disciplining their kids, not leading them, being a derelict father, that person must not be an elder. Because if they don't know how to lead in their own home, they cannot and should not lead outside of their home because they don't know how to do it. Not in a loving way, not in a helpful way, not in an instructive way. So the the standard for elders is high, how they treat their wife, how they treat their children. Uh, So here's the question for us, because some of us are never going to be elders, but this still applies to us because this is God's picture of leadership. This is what Christian maturity looks like. It's commanded for all, required of elders. Commanded for everybody, required for elders. Everybody should aspire to it. An elder can't be an elder until he meets the qualification. So here's the question for us. How do you treat your spouse? Question number two, how do you raise your children? Is your clock set correctly? How do you treat your spouse? How do you raise your children? Verse 7, as an overseer, there's that word overseer, episkopos, he uses elder and overseer. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. Now, why does Paul use that word blameless again? Because in verse 6, he talks about the household. In verse 7 and following, or 6 and following, he talks about, uh, I'm sorry, verse 6, he talks about the family. Verse 7 through 9, he talks about uh, God's household. He talks about the church. An overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. Same word used again. Think of integrity. You're not perfect, but you don't have outstanding warrants. You're not un- things aren't unaddressed. You don't have hidden stuff going on. Must be blameless, not arrogant. Uh, the word arrogant, you know, we think of the word proud, someone who's arrogant, someone who's self-willed. Um, this really deals with what he thinks about himself. And in verse 7, Paul gives us five vices. So I want you to use these five vices like a mirror in your own life. God wants to help straighten you and your life out to live according to Him. Here are five vices for you to avoid or address. If you're not avoiding these, He wants you to address these. Arrogance. A leader must be humble. Christians must humble themselves. We must be a humble people, not arrogant. A leader must constantly demonstrate the gospel in three ways. This is part of, this is what not arrogant means. It means you admit when you're wrong, you assume responsibility, and you restore relationships as long as it's possible for you. You admit when you're wrong, you assume responsibility, and you restore relationships. That is, you're a peacemaker. You're trying to restore relationships because you know that's what God cares about, relationships. So not arrogant. The next word, not hot-tempered. This can be translated not soon angry. 
You're not quickly angered. You're not hot-tempered. This speaks of your emotional maturity. God wants us to be emotionally mature. He wants us to be able to handle situations without immediately blowing up in our minds. Here's the question. I love this question. Can you be gentle with other people's weaknesses and offenses? God wants to mature each person in this room. This isn't just elders, this Christian maturity. He wants to train each of us to be gentle with people's weaknesses and their offenses. If you're not gentle with their weaknesses, you're hot-tempered. You're soon angry. You don't know how to be gentle with someone when they're, you know, kind of messy. The third one he gives is not an excessive drinker. You already know what this is, not someone who's given to wine, addicted to wine. But alcohol is idiomatic for any addictive substance. When it speaks about soberness and about self-control, this isn't just about alcohol. Because you can't have a guy who's like, well, I'm given to much wine, and another guy that constantly does meth and be like, well, he can be an elder. No. It, you, you, can't, you can't be addicted to any kind of substance and be a good leader. This is not to place judgment and point fingers on those that are addicted to drugs. I have addictions that I've had to deal with. I think every person is addicted to something, but not all carry the same consequences. Everybody is tempted and drawn to things that are no good for them. That's called being human. We all have a sinful nature. God wants for all of us to not be controlled by any substance. So Paul includes in God's Word, inspired through the Holy Spirit, it gives us not given to much wine, not an excessive drinker, not an indulger, not given to substance. This talks about self-control of your stomach. It's natural to want more of something than you should have. It's natural to want something that feels good. But if you know that it's killing you, destroying you, putting you on the wrong path, God is giving you the strength as a believer. You can run away from any temptation. He even tells you in the Lord's Prayer, lead me away from temptation. Deliver me from evil. Lead me away from temptation. Our prayer ought to be, God, I could be tempted with something. I'm one wrong mistake in a life I don't want. Help me to lead me away from temptation. So not an excessive drinker. It's for all of us, required of elders. Not a bully. Uh, maybe your translation says not pugnacious. Anybody has not pugnacious? I know the NASB has it. I remember the first time I heard not pugnacious. Loved it because I didn't know what that word meant. And I heard it about 100 times. I never found out what it meant. Finally, I was like, I got to study this because, you know, I'm at a school with a bunch of, I've been to Sunday school all my life kind of kids, and I was not raised in Sunday school. So I feel insecure. I'm trying to become a pastor and a leader. So I'm like trying to learn mnemonic things. You know those dogs that have the word pugs in them? Pug? You know how their face is like wrinkly and ugly? Anybody have like an ugly dog? I know some of you have ugly dogs. Anyway, I just imagine an ugly, mean, growling dog, pugnacious, a dog that's just ready to fight. The idea of a bully or a striker or a violent man is someone who's ready and, and really anxious to be violent. Well, in God's kingdom, we ought not to be given to violence like that. Now, this is not referring to sports, right? UFC fighters are not automatically disqualified from being elders because that's a sport. 
But if outside the ring in the sport you are quick to be violent, you have not controlled your temper and your hands, and you're not ready to be an elder. Now, you could become an elder if you get that in check. If you give yourself to the Lord and say, I don't want to be given to violence. I want to love like you love. I want to treat people like you treat people. You could become an elder. This isn't like if you've ever done this, you're disqualified because this list is pretty exhaustive. It's not actually exhaustive. There's more things. But it's intimidating. None of us are perfect. No one's perfect. But the idea is if you're going to be a leader, and all of us should aspire to this maturity, if you're going to be a leader, you cannot be a violent person. You can't be a bully. Also, you can't be greedy for money. Or my favorite translation, you cannot be given to filthy lucre. I love that phrase, and I never get to use it outside of the, the stage, the pulpit. Filthy lucre. That just sounds bad. But who hasn't been greedy before? We've all been greedy before. But maturity is not greedy. We have to mature. We have to grow to a point to where we're not given to a love of money. That's God's desire for Christian maturity and the standard for eldership. You cannot be, you cannot be greedy for money. A leader has financial integrity. Not greedy for money. Uh, the Financial Peace University class that's coming up, you should totally try it. Dave Ramsey's funny anyway, but it's a really good class. It helps you get your finances in check. A leader should be able to manage finances with control. Are you in control of that? That's the idea. Do you have a love for money? If you have a love for money, it's the root of all evil. A love for money is a root of all evil, and that will lead you down the wrong path. You can't have that in your life. A root of bitterness... Uh, or the root of a love for money, that's going to lead you away from God's design and His wisdom. You're going to have no discernment. You're not going to be able to lead people. You're going to lead people astray. Integrity matters. It doesn't matter what the papers say, what the polls say, what other people say. It matters what's inside. You can't be greedy for money. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Jesus said that. So those are five vices. Then Paul lists six virtues in verse 8. But hospitable... Loving what is good. Now, I'm, I'm combining these two because they use the same adjective for love. You, if you've ever heard of the different words for love in this language, agape, you know, the God sacrificial love. You have phileo, which is like brother love, like Philadelphia, brotherly, city brotherly love. The idea is you are a lover of strangers and you're a lover for what is good. You love what is good. You don't have bad stuff in your life that you love. Now, it doesn't mean you're perfect, it just means you're a lover of good. You want ultimately God's kingdom, what He wants. It's a requirement for leadership. It's the aim and the standard for Christian maturity. Loving what is good. Sensible. This means you're discerning. You're sober. Uh, you know, when it, some people, when, they, when you get the Greek words and you, you divide all these up in Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, they, they combine sensible and not an excessive drinker or given to wine because they both have the same root. The idea is you're sober-minded, but it doesn't mean you're just not drunk. It means you have discernment. You're able to hear things that are happening, problems, issues, and you're able to do this. Now, it doesn't mean you do it all the time. Everybody has a bad day. No one bats a thousand. But you cannot be in a habit of not being sensible because you're no good to the people that God wants you to care for if you're not sensible, if you don't have discernment. Righteous, that means you're fair in judgment. No favoritism. Uh, the way we practice this at Grace, the pastors do not know 
one data point of information about what anybody individually gives. We don't know what anybody gives. Why? Partially because we're human. Let's say you have family A, and family A gives, let's say, a million dollars every year to the church. Let's just dream high here. You give a million dollars, family A. Family B gives like $10 a year to the church. If a pastor knows that, family A and family B, they email the same time. Hey, my daughter's having a wedding. We want to have the wedding at the church. What do you think a leader is going to do if he knows family A gives a million dollars, family B gives $10? What's a leader going to do, or at least be tempted with? Showing favoritism to family A. It's better that we don't, none of the pastors here know a single thing about how much anybody gives. Not even one thing. We have no, we don't know if you give. We don't even know that you give. Now we know people give. People give here generously. But we don't know who gives because it's more fair and helpful for us to have judgment and discerning and to be able to care for you without knowing that stuff. So an elder has to be fair in judgment. That's one of the practical ways that we try to continue to be fair in our judgment. Holy, holy means devout or devoted to godly living, just holy, set apart, separated for God. You've, you've heard that when speaking about the word holy. But it's not just separated. The idea is you are personally committed to God's kingdom, His work, and you're devout. So people aren't going to look at you and go, are you sure he's a Christian? That kind of person should not be an elder. You've got to be sure that this person's committed to it and shows it. And then he ends with self-controlled. Paul ends with the idea of self-controlled. Paul is saying that leadership is devoted and given to those who have integrity in the home, in their heart, their habits, and their head. You combine all these things, it's a life of integrity at home and without. They should be chosen by how they live, not by their talent or charisma. And one of the ways that American churches have to have like extra, you know, protections for us is that we don't think the best pastors are those with talent and charisma. The best pastors are those that qualify according to Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's God's design for good eldership, leadership, pastoral, shepherding, all that. They should be chosen for that. And number three, why we need leaders. And this is really a cliffhanger for next week, but why do we need leaders? In Titus 1 verse 9, holding to the faithful message as taught, that's to God's word. Elders, leaders have to be holding tight to God's word so that he will be able to do two things. He can encourage with sound doctrine because he knows the word. I know the word. I'm able to share with someone else what I know and to refute those who contradict it. You got to be able to battle against the lies and the false teachers. And verse 10 is where it really comes home. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. And that's what we're going to get into next week. But I want you to focus on that word many in verse 10. There are many. Why is the standard so high? Why is the function to shepherd, to teach? Why does this person almost seem impossible to get? Because there are many rebellious people that are leading the church astray, and God's design is for the elders to care about the flock, to care about the sheep. Thank you for listening to all that. I know today's more of a teaching than a preaching. Um, I give you guys an A. You guys did great. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, we love spending time 
thinking about and studying your word because it's, it's your word. We need your wisdom. We need your instruction, your direction, your guidance. We pray that you would help us be a church that is healthy and fruitful. Lord, would you please raise up biblically qualified elders in our church family? Would you unite us so that we can promote unity within the body? Would you help us to live according to your word? Who can lead this great people? Would you please give wisdom to the elders in this church? Would you help us as we care for the flock? We love you. Leadership is your idea. Eldership is your idea. It's your design. Would you help us to live according to it? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.